Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week on the show, we talk about an always important topic, pornography. We have with us Lisa Eldred, who serves at Covenant Eyes and has just written an ebook called Hobbies and Habits, which really helps readers to fight pornography with purpose. Pornography thrives in secrecy. You isolate yourself to watch it and you keep isolating yourself and then you keep watching it because you feel so isolated. Hey, welcome to Endowed. If you haven't heard of this ministry, Endowed exists to bring the gospel to the relevant issues of life and faith that we all face every day cultivating conversation. We do this mainly by what we're doing on the show that you're listening to. Uh, every week on Monday, a conversation comes out on a specific topic on life or faith, and we have a special guest join us who can really speak well into it. Uh, we also write articles, we create Bible studies, and host live events. Everything is free and can be found at endout.ca. As I said just a moment ago, this week's conversation is on pornography addiction. We have the great privilege of having a conversation with author Lisa Eldred. She serves at Covenant Eyes and has just written a book, like I said, called Hobbies and Habits, which is really what our conversation is going to be focused on, this book. In our conversation, Lisa also reminds us of the huge part pornography still plays in our world, obviously in a negative sense. And even though we all know that pornography is wrong, especially if you're a Christian, but many non-Christians also believe that, uh, we still ought to be freshly reminded of where pornography is at in our culture, at least in the West. It helps us kind of regain um, the, the true hatred for the sin that we should have in our, in our zeal to work and pray at seeing it gone. Now, whether or not you struggle with pornography addiction, this conversation will be beneficial because I'm certain that someone close to you probably does struggle. Anyways, here's our chat with Lisa. With me today is author Lisa Eldred. Lisa is a digital communication specialist at Covenant Eyes. She's also authored several books. It's great to have you on the show today, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So first, tell us just a bit about who you are, perhaps a little bit about your uh, kind of your testimony, how you came to know Jesus. I am basically the quintessential church kid. I remember sitting there in the sound booth and just hearing some, whatever the pastor was preaching on, it was just one of those, like, I turned to my dad who was running the sound system that day and it was like, I'm, you know, I'm three years old. I'm like, daddy, I want to go to heaven to be with Jesus when I die or something like that. And like, just having that fear of hell initially in me. As an adult, I don't know if that's when I was officially, you know, quote unquote, saved. But I do think that that was kind of that moment where, like, God has been faithful to me since that point. And, you know, as you grow, as you do, like, I've just had multiple instances growing up where it's like, no, this is not just the churchy thing that I do because I'm a good kid. This is this is really the decision that I have made for myself. You know, I've had several of those turning points in my life. Probably the biggest one was I went through a church split in high school, and that one was over doctrine especially, which if you've got to have a church split, having one that actually forces you to think through, no, really, what do I believe and why? I mean, that's probably about the best reason for one. And there's just been multiple instances in my life of like relating to that sort of thing. So Now, when you started working at Covenant Eyes, I mean, what were your thoughts on pornography and pornography addiction? I came here, honestly, didn't even necessarily care about the issue of pornography at the time. For me, it was much more like, okay, it's definitely a sin. It's not something that I'm going to do, but, you know, it's 
one of those. I there are a lot of sin issues where I don't expect the world to believe the same as I do, and I don't expect the world to behave the same as I do. And at that point, I kind of put pornography in that category. Um, it was probably within the first four to six months once I started actually doing the research and seeing, oh, wait, no, this is how pornography is actually impacting your brain, where I began to understand porn not just as a sin issue, which it obviously is, but actually a health issue in a lot of ways. I mean, it literally retrains people's brains. Now, you recently wrote an ebook called Hobbies and Habits, which we'll get into in just a moment, but uh, this this is one of many books and different resources that even a place like Coming Eyes uses and creates to help combat pornography use. And even just last year, uh, we had a great conversation with Chris McKenna, which I'm sure you know. But I'm wondering, Lisa, if you'd just be able to kind of remind us of the current state of, of pornography use in North America. Because I know, I feel like everyone listening knows that it's an issue, but we always kind of forget how big of an issue this really is. So... I could just list off stats, but honestly, I think that would probably be boring to more people. Um, I mean, who likes listening to, here's the number, 50%. If you are interested in the stats, we're in the process of revamping our pornography statistics document. You can find an old version on our website. I'm sure there will be a link in the uh, liner notes. But where I actually wanted to go with this, um, so there was a shooting in Santa Fe High School in Texas and I bring this shooting up because one of the causes that I have heard for the shooting is that the young man who did the shooting had gotten rejected for about the over the course of three months, continually asking a girl out. And she kept saying no. And in the end, she actually publicly humiliated him because he just wasn't getting the picture of no. I said, no, I don't want to go out with you. Stop asking me. And the term that has been thrown around for that for I think there was a driving incident in Toronto, and then there was another shooting incident in California four or five years ago now. But since then, and we've heard the term increasingly of incel or involuntary celibacy. And I bring all of this up because I would put money that these young men, and like the one in California, I actually read his manifesto, and, but I would put money on the fact that a lot of people who are calling themselves incels and dealing with the bitterness of that use pornography. And it has been training their brain to expect that sexuality is a right, that women are a right, that if a guy asks a girl out, she will say yes. You just If she doesn't say yes at first, you just have to keep asking her and then eventually she'll say yes and it'll be awesome and whatever. Honestly, looking at pornography, like, that just trains you that that is the expectation. I mean, there are multiple causes for all these violent incidents. Obviously, I'm not saying that porn is the only cause, but I do believe that porn is a factor. I live in Michigan. We, I live actually in the shadow of Michigan State University. I can just drive down the street and get to the campus. Larry Nassar, of course, has been in the news for molesting, like, hundreds of young gymnasts and as part of that, I am surprised that they haven't made a bigger deal of this, but they found child pornography on his computer. Nobody walks into child porn. Nobody walks into like molesting young girls without having a history of porn use. And it is this constant training of people's brains that I think that, you know, some of us, like those of us who have done the research at Covenant Eyes and in partner organizations, 
we're starting to understand. Culturally, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. But that being said, I do think things are starting to get better. We are starting to notice that a lot of states like Utah, I think, was the first state that started to recognize porn as a public health crisis. And actually, I think it was in Minnesota. They actually made some sort of decision that pornography is now admissible evidence in um, sex trafficking cases. So it's one of those things. The culture is starting to shift slowly to recognize that, no, this is not just a lifestyle choice or whatever. This is something that is actually wrecking the brains of young men and women. Absolutely. No, that's good. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you actually chose to go that route rather than just the, the statistics. And, you know, I, I really am uh, happy that you did that because it does show the sort of the trajectory of what can, not always mm-hmm. what does happen. I mean, right, if, you're, right. if you're listening right now and you're struggling with pornography use, I don't, I don't think Lisa's trying to scare you into thinking that you're now going to go and commit this really violent act. She's not saying that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But it's just the trajectory of that kind of thing. And it does, it does rewire your brain. And we're not exactly talking about that like fully this episode, but we should probably come back and talk about that uh, as well. But anyways, for this conversation, Lisa, I want to ask why you wrote this book, Hobbies and Habits, but perhaps you could first kind of illustrate to us this story that you write at the very beginning. Well, not you don't write it. You're kind of explaining what this sort of rat story is and then explain the main point of the book because I think it fits so well into the purpose of the book. Before I actually explain this particular study, I do want to give the caveat of this is not what I would call hard science. This is almost more of anecdotal data. There are some questions of, can this study be replicated? So there's debate. That said, I think this is very illustrative, and honestly, it matches to what we find in the Bible. Back in the 70s, in the kind of the heyday of like the war on drugs and all of the research on drugs, a scientist actually sat there and he looked at the research that was happening, which was on rats, and he was like, wait a minute. So we're doing research on the addictiveness of drugs on rats who are in isolated cages. They don't have a whole lot of room to move around. They don't have any sort of socializing that they can do with the other rats. But the problem is rats are social creatures, and you know they are used to being able to run around in parks, run around in the sewers in New York City, or whatever. So he actually, at that point, started an experiment that's called Rat Park, where he built a park for rats. And, you know, kind of a big plywood thing they put in, like, if they didn't put in actual plants, they at least painted the walls of the park. They put in cardboard tubes to play around in, and probably most importantly, they actually let the rats live in community in this park. And as part of that experiment, they had a couple of different options for them, like, hey, here's morphine-laced water, um versus here's plain water, and the rats that lived in community were more likely to drink the plain water than the morphine water. Um, And that held true for them even when they actually put in rats that started out addicted. Kind of the general idea was, hey, you know, these are rats that are really living the way that they're supposed to. Like one of the connections that they made was a lot of veterans of the Vietnam War were addicted to drugs while they were over in Vietnam and they came back and the addiction, if not completely went away, it kind of lessened. Now, all of this to say, like, this does not mean that drugs are not addictive. This does not mean that pornography isn't changing your brain and making itself, like, at least mimicking a true addiction, if not an actual addiction. But it does mean that part of the component of healing for these sorts of addiction probably means that you need to change up your environment. 
you know, you need to take yourself out of situations at the very least where, like, everyone I hang out with is watching porn. Maybe I shouldn't hang out with people who only watch porn anymore. And this is true. There's a parable in Matthew that Jesus tells of basically a man who casts a demon out of his house and the demon goes away and, you know, wanders around in the wilderness. And in the end, he's like, okay, I'm going to go and try and, like, get back into that house because, hey, it was a nice, comfortable house. Goes back, the man has not done anything to his house to change it up, to basically make it so that there's no room for the demon. So the demon moves back in and he brings in seven of his friends. And the man is in a worse condition than he was before. So I think there's a lot of parallels with addiction going on there. Yeah, no, that's good, Lisa. I, I appreciate that. Now, I- I- in this book, Hobbies and Habits, you do write uh, a lot. I mean, there, I mean, there's just chapter upon chapter of different ways in which you can sort of help your your hobbies and your habits to help sort of combat uh, this place where pornography, let's say, was. So I, I just want to touch on a few of them. And one of them is this importance of community and friendship. And I just I'm wondering if you kind of explain this to us and why this is so important, uh, community and friendship when it comes to, you know, getting out of pornography addiction. There was a psychologist, I do not remember his name, you can search for it on the Covenant Eyes website and you will find this illustration, but he basically compared pornography to a three-legged stool. The three legs of a stool are accessibility, affordability, and anonymity. And if you just remove one of the legs, then the stool of pornography falls down. You can't sit on it, you can't use it anymore. Covenantized itself is founded on kind of that principle of we remove the anonymity. I bring this up to tie this to community because, honestly, pornography thrives in secrecy. You know, it's the stereotypical picture of the person in the dark room sitting there and watching it away from other people isolated. What I try and address in the book is that really... It's kind of this feedback loop of you isolate yourself to watch it and you keep isolating yourself and then you keep watching it because you feel so isolated. And part of the way, like one of the ways to break that is finding community, finding that connection through church. And I think back probably like 50 years ago, you know, when our parents were kids, church was just kind of that cultural place that you went, that you formed friendships. You didn't have social media to kind of provide that in some ways, like... Not to discount social media. I love social media personally, and I think that it can be a healthy tool to use to connect to people. But you were forced to actually interact with people one-on-one. You know, you made friends that way. You hung out with coworkers, and you made plans in the evenings and on weekends and whatnot. And I think now we have just gotten so, like, we've filled our lives with just busyness. We've filled our lives with kind of that false intimacy of social media. You know, how many friends do you have who just fill their Facebook profile with memes. And yes, again, there can be true connections made online. Let's not discount that fact. But we also need those real people to come alongside us to actually get to know what's going on in our hearts. And again, this is a biblical principle. You know, how many verses about, you know, one anothering each other are there in the New Testament? There's like 40 or 50 or something like that. And just the entire foundation of the church is that these are people who are coming together and, you know, and so often as you get together, do this in remembrance of me. And they're enjoying communion together and they're remembering Jesus' sacrifice together. And that is something that we have lost. Oh, that's good. And I, I appreciate that. That's really good. Now, we're already coming close to the end of our conversation. I have two more questions to ask. And I want to jump to this one. You talk about hobbies 
as a way to help sort of fill that space that porn once kind of was in. So I guess a question is why doesn't, you know, just stopping work? And how does, you know, even gaining hobbies, whether they're, and again, in, in the book, uh, Hobbies and Habits, if you're listening, Lisa goes into physical things, mental things, home kind of type things, service, all these different things that can help. So yeah, why doesn't just stopping work and why does actually gaining hobbies um, help us uh, quit? So this goes back to that parable that I mentioned of, you know, the man with the demon and the guy never filled up, you know, he never filled his life with other things. And so the demon had plenty of room to just move back in. There's, it might be Jeff Foxworthy, some comedian that I remember that, you know, talked about like, yeah, he decided to quit smoking by taking up drinking. He quit drinking by taking up illegal drugs, that sort of thing. And, you know, just kind of that negative progression cycle. And I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that, that if you aren't replacing, I mean, porn takes literal time to watch, you know, that's like 10 or 15 minutes at the least every day that you could be doing something else. Um, it's just one of those things like you need to replace the space. We actually have a, a customer of ours who we've shared his story before. And what wound up happening for him personally is, you know, he and his wife dealt with, oh, we have porn going on in our marriage. He was watching porn. For a while, they saved their marriage because it's like, okay, you know, we're going to stick through this. We're going to get past porn. But he actually wound up eventually, like, his wife divorced him because he never replaced porn with something else. Um, and so this leads to the question of, well, why hobbies? So before I say this, I hope that this is clear. I am not discounting the gospel at all in this. You know, absolutely turn to Jesus. But one of the things that has frustrated me through my time of working at Covenant Eyes is just, like, People in comments especially tend to be like, well, I, you know, I don't need this. I just need Jesus or whatever. Like, you know, the gospel is just thrown out as kind of a panacea of like, why do I need actual physical tools or whatever? And the answer is because we have an actual physical body. Again, yes, Jesus can take away these addictions. It is fully within his power to do so, but he doesn't usually work that way. He uses one another to take these things away. And one tool that I think we have in our toolbox is to retrain our brain to use hobbies, um, whether that's art, whether that's exercise. Um, one of the feeders into pornography is that people have a lot of sense of purposelessness. And so it's like, find meaning through learning how to cook, find, you know, find that sense of accomplishment through learning how to, you know, do woodworking or whatever. That's kind of the idea behind why I wrote this book. This book is also intensely practical because I think that people have lost the general sense of where do I even start. And so that's pretty much the entire second half of the book is, okay, let's, you know, here are different hobby types. Not everyone is going to want to take up painting or music as a hobby. Where do you get started with things like, um, you know, woodworking or even simply like going out and exploring your environment, like trying to kickstart that creativity, you know? Absolutely. And, and that's what I so appreciate about Hobbies and Habits, your book as well, because, you know, someone can be listening and they can hear, you know, okay, you can't just, well, you can, but uh, it's it's hard just to stop. You need to fill your 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 time and your your mental energy with other things. And someone can hear that and be like, absolutely, okay, but where do I start, like you just said? And now you've just laid out, okay, here's really practical ways in which you can do that. So I appreciate that. For our last question here, which will be less than a minute, Lisa, 
for those listening right now, I just I don't think we can talk about pornography without addressing uh, this last part. But for those that are listening right now who are suffering in pornography addiction and are just sort of feeling the weight um, of their their sin and their and their guilt, how would you encourage them today? And you know, how does the gospel speak into their life today? I think there are kind of two things that I would say. One is that Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. Like that is. You know, he has forgiven us. His work on the cross is, it covers everything. You know, I brought up Larry Nasser earlier in this interview. And if Larry Nasser turns to Jesus, as I know at least one of his victims has prayed that he would do, Jesus's death and substitution for our sins is sufficient for Larry Nasser's salvation. So the other thing that I would like to say is just to ask, like, address the physical thing. To be honest, there are going to be people who struggle with pornography their entire life. That's you know, even you might take a break for it for a long time, but I think there are people who the temptation will always be there. You will always struggle. But to them, I because literally, especially those who stumbled across porn as kids, this is something that's rewired their brains. But there is a physical hope because part of the point of the death and resurrection of Jesus is that one day we're going to get resurrection bodies. We're not going to have this in our brains anymore. Um, and... Yeah, it sounds a little bit depressing of, oh, no, I'm going to have to deal with this for my entire life. Um, and I think there are ways that you can alleviate it. That's part of the point of hobbies and habits is this is one tool for your tool belt. But in the end, like, you know, what's 60 or 70 years in comparison to the light of eternity? That's so good. And and for those listening, too, I mean, Lisa could probably tell you the numbers of people that have, you know, written Covenant Eyes and have said that they're free now <laughs> from this, too. So I appreciate that. So, yeah, thanks so much for your time and wisdom, Lisa. If you're interested in reading uh, Hobbies and Habits, I definitely suggest you go and get it. It's free, which is just incredible as well. You can just head to CovenantEyes.com and you can find it there. But anyways, I just want to thank you again, Lisa, so much, and I hope to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. That was author Lisa Eldred from Covenant Eyes. Again, you can have your own copy of Hobbies and Habits for free. You can just head to covenanteyes.com and you'll be able to find it under free resources. And again, I'll add that link as well uh, to the episode podcast page. Now, before we wrap up today, I just want to briefly talk about prayer. I think we often forget about the incredible power uh, that's found in prayer and its very practical nature as well. I don't really know if you've thought about how you should pray. I don't want to say that you have to pray this way or that way, but I was reflecting on this prayer that David, the king of Israel, prays uh, at the end of his life uh, before he dies. And I was looking at his prayer and I could kind of see this threefold pattern that he that he has. The first thing he does is that he, you know, he, he exalts God. He, so he thinks about God first. And the second part of his prayer is that he, he considers who he is and he considers who Israel is and he, you know, thinks about the insignificance that they are in comparison to the God that he's just prayed about. And then the third thing he does is he asks. And I think oftentimes when we, you know, pray, we think about it's only requesting. It's only asking. You, you know, you pray to God for something and that's good and you should keep doing that. But I think it's interesting that in this sort of threefold pattern, we have David first exalting God, then kind of thinking about himself in the sense of their kind of humility and vulnerability and weakness compared to the strength of God. And then he asks and it really helps uh, just kind of prepare for how we ask and what we ask for. So, 
Uh, I just kind of want to briefly go through those three things to kind of help all of us pray, especially if you are struggling with pornography addiction or any kind of thing. Um, This is a really good way for you to pray. So the first part is God. Nothing really marks a powerful prayer more than starting with God. And we're not just saying, you know, talking about saying the name of God. We're talking about remembering who he is. I mean, in this prayer in First Chronicles, David, you know, exalts God as the forever father. He's the ultimate owner. He's the head and ruler above all things. He's the giver of good. He reflects on the glory of God. And I just think starting with God's glory in our prayers reminds us of who the God is that we're praying to. You know, we may be going through it like a really hard, difficult time. Perhaps it is addiction. Yet upon reflecting on the incomprehensible massiveness of God, we do actually gain perspective and we'll be better prepared to make better requests. And as an added thought, I mean, our God just deserves that we start with him, right? So we may be his children that, you know, he adopted at this great price, but he's still our king and we're still his servants. So we start with God. The next part is, you know, talking about us. You know, we must remember and be humbled by our weakness, especially, you know, compared to God. But David also shows his integrity by praying that it was from the uprightness of the heart that he and Israel gave to the Lord. Now, was there any sinful intention or motivation in their, you know, their gifts? Of course, but their focus was generally pure and David was honest about that. He didn't just discouragingly slump his head down and say, well, I'm nothing, I'm dirt, I might as well just die. No, he was he was genuine with God about who he was and we ought to be as well. And the last part of his prayer, so first we exalt God, second we think about ourselves and we're, you know, honest with ourselves to God and then we make our ask. See, David makes two requests in his prayer. He asks that the purposes and thoughts of the hearts of Israel remain upright and generous and joyous before God. And he elaborates on that prayer by just simply saying, direct our hearts toward you. You know, David is concerned with the hearts of the people. And if you think about it, I think most issues are heart issues, right? What better request than to just ask that our hearts be directed toward God? And then David specifically asks God to grant his son Solomon a whole heart so that he may live a life fully honoring to God and that he may do the task that he's been given. David loves his son and he cares for him. Therefore, he asks God to do something that Solomon can't do himself. So our requests of God should also reach into the heart and then out to others. So really in summary, David exalts God. He honestly reflects on himself and humanity and he asks God for help. And this is just beautiful and it's powerful, this pattern for prayer. God, us, and then ask. And if I may, I mean, allow me to challenge all of us uh, to follow the outline of this prayer, especially if you're struggling with addiction. I believe we'd greatly grow in our faith and our prayer life if we did this. If InDoubt is a ministry that you'd like to participate in and partner with financially, we'd be so thankful. Uh, We rely on God's provision through the donations of generous people across this nation that believe in our mission and our vision. If that's you, then partnering with us is really, really, really simple. Just click the donate button and follow the simple instructions at indoubt.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. Make sure to connect with us online throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at InDoubtShow. That's sort of our handle, our username. Also, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can direct message us on any of those social networks, or you can always email us at hello at InDoubt.com. We're always taking suggestions for uh, topics and suggestions for different speakers. So if if you've been listening to a Christian author or pastor or just some leader, Um, and you're really enjoying what they have to say, then give us their name so that we can contact them and connect with them 
and talk about something that they're, they know about really well so we can have a good conversation. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we talk with apologist Jonathan Moreau from Impact 360 Institute. He gives us a basic understanding of the youngest generation, the Gen Zers, and how millennials can best engage Gen Zers for the kingdom. So we'll see you in September. Indoubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S. Thank you.